Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Mild West Virginia Senator Manchin and Capito's dirty deal that's been attached to the death ceiling limit. It's not only an affront and assault to the folks in West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina who've been fighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline for eight long years. As the House prepares to vote on a deal to suspend the debt ceiling, we'll look at growing outrage over the Biden administration's decision to fast-track the Mountain Valley Pipeline as part of the debt deal. We'll speak to a West Virginia farmer who spent years fighting the $6.6 billion pipeline. Then we look at a major Supreme Court ruling weakening the Clean Water Act. The court's decision today aims to take our country backwards. It will jeopardize the sources of clean drinking water for farmers, businesses, and millions of Americans. Then to Turkey, where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has won another five years in office, extending his rule to a third decade. Plus, Uganda's president has signed one of the most draconian anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. It makes same-sex relationships punishable by life imprisonment and, in some cases, the death penalty. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Lawmakers in the U.S. House are voting today on a bill to suspend the debt limit until January 2025 as Congress races against the clock to avert a potentially disastrous default on June 5th. On Tuesday, at least 20 far-right Republicans rejected Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling deal with President Biden. Members of the House Freedom Caucus are threatening to trigger a vote to remove McCarthy as House Speaker if the bill passes. Some progressives have also indicated they'll vote down the deal over its work requirements for social programs and so-called oil and gas permitting reforms. Lawmakers on the House Rules Committee narrowly voted to bring the bill to the floor Tuesday evening after exchange and cross-party jabs. This is Pennsylvania Democrat Mary Gay Scanlon, who voted against the bill. Here we are today, forced to address a manufactured debt ceiling crisis that has rattled global economic markets because right-wing members of the House have a stranglehold on House majority and its leadership. Republicans in the House, influenced by their most extreme members, decided to hold our country's economy hostage in order to take food out of the mouths of hungry Americans. Here in New York, climate protesters rallied near the Brooklyn home of Senator Chuck Schumer to demand the final debt ceiling deal not include any concessions on the climate crisis. This is Batamia Coronel of the Center for Popular Democracy. The deal that Senator Schumer and other Democratic leaders are cutting with Joe Manchin and the Republican Party, well, it just proves to us that they don't give a about people. They don't give a about people. 
The debt ceiling will fast track the Mountain, Pipe, Mountain Valley Pipeline, poisoning every poor community along its path and dumping millions of pounds of carbon, accelerating the crisis. Activists noted Senator Schumer received over $280,000 in donations this election cycle from Next Era Energy, a major stakeholder in the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is also a top donor to Senator Joe Manchin, who pushed for the deal. In Canada, authorities in Nova Scotia have declared an emergency and evacuated over 18,000 people as wildfires rage outside Halifax and mid record breaking heat. Air quality alerts were issued in parts of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Asia's heat wave also continues to smash records, with Shanghai reaching its highest May temperature in over a century at 97 degrees Fahrenheit. In India, the thermostat hit 113 degrees Fahrenheit in recent weeks, as many laborers and poor workers have no choice but to keep working outside in the extreme heat. Meanwhile, the European Union said this week it's doubling its aerial firefighting fleet to tackle worsening summer forest fires due to the climate crisis. Disasters are occurring with increased frequency and intensity. In recent years, we have seen wildfires raging in countries in the central and even northern Europe. And we have seen historic floods just now in Italy or two years ago in Germany and Belgium. This is why we are scaling up our response capacity across the mechanism including our ability to tackle wildfires. Hundreds of artificial intelligence experts, as well as tech executives, scholars and others, are warning AI poses an existential threat to humanity. The ominous one-line statement reads, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Among the signatories is Jeffrey Hinton, who's been dubbed the godfather of artificial intelligence. He recently quit Google so he could warn of the dangers of the technology he helped build. Experts say the greatest dangers may come with the development of artificial general intelligence, or AGI, in which machines would have cognitive abilities akin or superior to human beings, and that it could happen sooner than previously thought. Many have called for a pause on introducing new AI technology until strong government regulations are put in place. Meanwhile, fears are growing around AI's threat to the workforce, starting tomorrow, June 1st. Hotline operators at the National Eating Disorders Association will be replaced by a wellness chatbot named Tessa. Workers say executives at the organization moved to fire them and replace them with AI in retaliation for union organizing. Sudanese army has suspended its participation in ceasefire talks as a shaky truce with the paramilitary rapid support forces set to expire Monday has been punctured by ongoing fighting in and around the capital Khartoum. The talks in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, aim to protect and bring much-needed humanitarian aid to the civilian population of Sudan. The war has forcibly displaced 1.4 million people in the past six weeks, while the U.N. says some 25 million people, over half the population, need assistance. 
NATO's announced it'll deploy another 700 troops to northern Kosovo after at least 52 protesters and 30 NATO peacekeeping troops were injured during protests Monday. The protests were held after Kosovo sent armed forces to install ethnic Albanians to serve as mayors in four heavily Serbian areas where ethnic Serbs had boycotted a recent election. On Tuesday, Serbia's president, Aleksandr Vucic, blamed the hostilities in Kosovo, which Serbia does not recognize as an independent country. A U.N. special rapporteur warns international support for more than one million Rohingya refugees living in Bangladeshi camps is grossly insufficient. According to the U.N., about $876 million is needed to support Rohingya refugees for a year, but only 17 percent of that has been pledged to date. The World Food Program has been forced to make additional cuts due to funding shortages, dramatically scaling back its food assistance efforts for Rohingya refugees. Humanitarian aid groups are accusing Malta of violating international law after facilitating the forced return of hundreds of asylum seekers to Libya, where they were then imprisoned under horrific conditions. The group of some 500 migrants, including dozens of children and pregnant people, were on a boat to Europe when their ship went adrift last week, leaving them stranded in the Mediterranean as the boat started filling up with water. The asylum seekers called a humanitarian hotline for help. Maltese authorities responsible for search and rescue missions in the region never arrived. The group was instead captured at sea by what's believed to be a Libyan militia group and taken to a prison in Benghazi. Human rights groups have long denounced the torture, forced disappearances and other dangers faced by asylum seekers in Libya, which U.N. experts say amount to crimes against humanity. In Yemen, the United Nations has begun an operation to salvage over one million barrels of oil from a decaying tanker anchored in the Red Sea. It comes after years of delay and mounting warnings of a potentially catastrophic oil spill off the Yemeni coast after maintenance on the Safar tanker was suspended in 2015 due to the U.S.-backed Saudi-led war in Yemen. In Brazil, indigenous groups took to the streets across Brazil Tuesday, protesting a proposed law that would limit their ability to obtain protected status for their ancestral lands by excluding indigenous communities that were expelled before October 1988, when Brazil's current constitution was adopted. Brazil's lower house fast-tracked the legislation after growing pressure from powerful agricultural groups. In Sao Paulo, police fired tear gas at demonstrators. We are in a national protest with the original peoples of this territory. Today, in the name of Brazil, we are fighting for life. Here are my people, the Guarani people, fighting, saying no to the law of death, saying no to the law of destruction, saying no to the time frame. In April, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva recognized six ancestral lands with the largest two in the Amazon, fulfilling a campaign promise to protect the rainforest from commercial exploitation and indigenous sovereignty. A federal appeals court has ruled members of the Sackler family, the billionaire owners of OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma, can receive complete immunity from all current and future civil litigation related to their role in creating and fueling the opioid epidemic. The legal shield could lead to a settlement in the range of $6 billion for thousands of plaintiffs, including states, local governments and tribes. Tuesday's ruling reverses a 2021 court decision that did not protect Sackler family members from liability as part of the Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy declaration. The case can still be appealed to the Supreme Court. Opioid overdoses have killed over half a million people in the United States over the past 20 years, according to the CDC, including prescription and illicit drugs. 
In New York, a prisoner at Rikers Island died last week after becoming sick. 31-year-old Joshua Valles had, was being held at the psychiatric unit. He was transferred to a hospital after complaining of a headache and vomiting. He died a week later. He's the third death at Rikers this year. 2022 was the deadliest year at the jail complex in almost a decade. A recent report by a federal monitor warned prisoners at Rikers are at imminent risk of harm and renewed calls for a federal takeover of New York City jails. Disgraced Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes reported to a Texas prison Tuesday to begin her 11-year sentence after she was convicted of defrauding investors in her blood testing company. Holmes was declared the world's youngest self-made woman billionaire by Forbes in 2014 after securing hefty investments by falsely claiming Theranos machines could run a wide range of diagnostic tests from just a few drops of blood. Holmes has appealed her case but will remain in prison during legal proceedings. And in Pittsburgh, the federal death penalty trial of the gunman accused of killing 11 Jewish worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018 is underway. On Tuesday, jurors listened to a 911 audio recording that contained the last words of 84-year-old Bernice Simon, one of the massacre's victims. Simon told the dispatcher, I'm scared to death over background audio of screams and gunshots. Robert Bowers has pleaded not guilty to 63 charges, including hate crimes. Investigators say Bowers posted anti-Semitic comments and racist memes online in the months ahead of the shooting and called immigrants invaders. If convicted, Bowers could face execution. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show looking at how the proposed bipartisan debt limit deal the House is voting on today could cut funds for the Environmental Protection Agency and speed completion of the controversial $6.6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. Over 750 frontline communities and environmental justice groups oppose the pipeline. This comes as protests in several cities demanded lawmakers vote down what they are calling the dirty debt ceiling deal. If built, the proposed MVP, that's Mountain Valley Pipeline, will carry 2 billion cubic feet of fracked gas across more than 1,000 streams and wetlands of Appalachia. It has long been pushed by powerful West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, the biggest recipient of fossil fuel money in Congress. Meanwhile, the entire Virginia Democratic delegation in the House has submitted an amendment to strip the Mountain Valley Pipeline provision from the debt ceiling bill, calling it a free pass for the pipeline that sidesteps our nation's environmental laws and judicial review processes. Virginia Senator Tim Kaine says he'll introduce an identical amendment in the Senate. Well, for more, we're joined in Washington, D.C., by a West Virginian who lives in the path of this massive pipeline. Maury Johnson is a southern West Virginia landowner whose organic farm has already been impacted by the Mountain Valley Pipeline. He's a member of Preserve Monroe, as well as the Power Coalition, that is, Protect Our Water, Heritage and Rights Coalition. Both groups have been opposing MVP. His new essay for Common Dreams is headlined, It's Time to Kill the Dirty Deal Once and for all. 
Maury Johnson, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why are you so concerned about the passage of the debt deal, the lifting the debt ceiling, including uh, final um, approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline? Thank you. Good morning, Amy. Thanks for having me. So this uh, debt ceiling deal has a lot of things in it that should no, be nowhere near a debt ceiling deal, um, especially the uh, the student loan thing is really bad. My son's a recipient of student loans, and it's just, it's just a crushing thing. But as far as the permitting and the Mountain Valley Pipe exclusion from law, it's we have been telling the people permitting this and the people building this for eight years that they can't build this pipeline and follow the law. And it's been proven in court numerous times. So they just want to circumvent the law. I'm what a sacrifice looks like. If this deal goes through, this dirty deal of Joe Manchin's pet project Mountain Valley Pipeline, everybody in America needs to look in the mirror and say, I can be sacrificed also. And, uh, Maury, could you, uh, for those people who are not familiar with this 303-mile uh, proposed uh, pipeline, uh, how directly would it affect not only Monroe County, but the entire path of the, uh, of the pipeline? Uh, what are your major concerns about it? Well, um, we have documented many things all along the pipeline path, from the very beginning in uh, northern West Virginia and Mobley, across some very steep slopes, so the steepest that's probably ever been crossed in Appalachia, in slope-prone soils that's in central West Virginia and southern West Virginia and even in uh, southwest Virginia. We're in an earthquake zone, one of the most active earthquake zones in the east, and we have actually had some minor earthquakes during the construction of this pipeline. Uh, we know that the methane that leaks all along the pipeline uh, is harmful to the climate, it's already impacted a lot of people's water, including my own. I actually have not been able to use my water since 2021. I started having a pretty severe because uh, I'm in karst, and that's for people, that's caves and sinkholes. Now, they'll say, well, you've got to prove that, and they have an army of att attorneys. So I suspect, very strongly suspect, that this damage was done once they blasted near my house. Um, there's just so many problems with this pipeline. The eminent domain issues where they just take can take whatever they want, they've never really proven that it's um, for the use of the people in this country. Former Commissioner Cheryl Lafleur in 2017 said she'd only seen where a small portion of this was actually being used. Um, they use something called a precedent agreement where the pipeline company, the people building the pipeline, can sell the capacity on the pipeline to themselves, affiliate to themselves. And that's all that FERC has said um, is uh, needed. One other thing. The day before Earth Day, President Biden issued an executive order saying that environmental justice for all is the priority of his um, administration. He cannot say that and permit things like the Willow Project the more LNG projects in the Gulf Coast, and more pipelines across Appalachia. 
Now, I wanted to ask you, a spokesperson for Mountain Valley Pipeline, Natalie Cox, told uh, the Mountain State Spotlight, and I'm quoting uh, occur there, the, M- the Mountain Valley Project, along with all submitted plans and processes, have undergone rigorous review and evaluation for more, ye- for more years and in many cases has been subject to a level of scrutiny that is unprecedented for a project of this nature. Uh, how do you respond to her comments? It has received lots of scrutiny, and the courts and has struck down their permits because they cannot follow the law. I don't know how many different agencies, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, federal agencies, have have tried to change the law, weaken the law, to permit this project. Permitting should not, for any project, should not be weakened and fast-tracked. If they had followed the law— and follow our Bedrock Environmental and Endangered Species Act, this project may not have ever been started to begin with, or it would have drastically been changed. So, um, yes, and even the Fourth Circuit, uh, the D.C. Circuit, just last Friday, questioned FERC on why did you issue a two-year extension back in 2020 without doing a supplemental environmental impact statement? Uh, This project has been very poorly designed from the very beginning, and we have told them so many, many, many times. And all they do is pay more more legislators. Uh, If this project is added to the dirty to this debt ceiling, then that just will violate constitutional law. It will end democracy for people, for citizens being able to say this is wrong. You can't do this. All that corporation would have to do is throw a bunch of money to politicians. The corporations get rich, the politicians get rich, and the people and the citizens of the country are sacrificed. I wanted to go to um, a comment of Crystal Cavalier-Keck. We spoke to her last year. She's chair of the NAACP Environmental Justice Committee, and a member of the Okanichi Band of Sapani Nation, talking about how the MVP threatens sacred burial grounds. So the map, it starts in West Virginia, and it goes through the mountaintops. And on these mountaintops are our sacred burial grounds of our Monacan, Saponi, and Okanichi nations. And, you know, the MVP, they call these burial mounds rock piles, and they often say these do not exist, which often makes us—they're trying to extinct us or genocide us again. Um, but it's going through these very sacred mountains, going through waters, boring under rivers, and these sacred waters of like the Roanoke, the Dan, and the Haw River, which is very sacred to my tribe and my community. As we wrap up, can you comment, Maury, on what Cavalier Keck is saying? And also the very stringent um, rules that are being set forth um, in this uh, deal— that would really take power away from the courts, where environmentalists have been having a series of victories against the MVP, and demand that it be approved within, what, 21 days of signing? <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about the, the Native American artifacts and, and burial grounds. I've been told—I haven't actually gotten to see it, but I've been told that in Lewis County, West Virginia, MVP destroyed Native American artifacts that were 15,000 years old. I know that in 
uh, numerous areas. They they uh, found a lots of Native American artifacts in Summers County on a place called uh, Akini's Knob. I know that on Peter's Mountain, I can see Peter's Mountain from my house, where the Appalachian Trail will be impacted, not only there, but along this pipeline for over 100 miles, unprecedented impacts. Um, on Peter's Mountain on the Virginia side, I have and other people have photoed an area of significant Native American artifacts. And they just want to blast through it. They're not going to do it. They won't have to do any kind of a study or looking for it. It's happened in Bent Mountain, Virginia. And then if the MVP is completed and they do the MVP Southgate that goes through Crystal's area, there's lots and lots of Native American area, uh, artifacts and areas in southern Virginia and um, south uh, northern uh, North Carolina. So this pipeline, this bill says that uh, the, the federal government and the state government has to issue permits within 21 days. Whether they can meet the actual rules or not, it doesn't matter. And you can't take it to court. There's the unconstitutional part of it. Citizens' rights to redress their grievances before the court is part of the Constitution. And they're taking the power from the citizens and from the courts. Um, If they can do that to us and people in Appalachia, they can do it to anyone. I also said that, yes, yes. And we just have to wrap up. We have 15 more seconds. Okay. Okay. Well, they just need to get this out of this uh, debt ceiling package or just let's just just pass a clean CR and get some of this bad stuff like this permitting and the Sim Mountain Valley pipeline and the student loan stuff. It needs to go. And thank you, Tim Kane and the delegates from Virginia and the others who are fighting on our behalf. Maury Johnson, I want to thank you for being with us. Southern West Virginia organic farmer whose land has been impacted by the Mountain Valley Pipeline, member of the Preserve Monroe, as well as Power Coalition, Protect Our Water Heritage yes. and Rights Coalition. We'll link to your article. And we have a it's website. time to Power. kill the dirty deal once and for all. The website, Maury? Power.org. Power. P-O-W-H-R dot org. Next up, we look at a major Supreme Court ruling weakening the Clean Water Act. Back in 30 seconds. for Bassoon and Marimba, composed by Connor Chi. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at another environmental story. In a major decision last week, the U.S. Supreme Court sharply limited the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to protect and preserve wetlands under the Clean Water Act. It was a 5-4 to four ruling. The justices wrote, 
that the Clean Water Act only applies to wetlands with a, quote, continuous surface connection to larger bodies of water, excluding wetlands that are near other bodies of water. The ruling ends protections for about half of all the wetlands in the contiguous United States. Justice Samuel Leto wrote the majority opinion. He was joined by fellow right-wing justices John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. However, conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh joined the court's three liberal justices in opposing the weakening of the Clean Water Act. Kavanaugh wrote the decision will have, quote, significant repercussions for water quality and flood control throughout the United States, unquote. The court's decision is seen as a major victory for polluters and developers. At the White House, Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre criticized the ruling. It will jeopardize the sources of clean drinking water for farmers, businesses, and millions of Americans. Uh, look, the, the Clean Water Act is the reason why America's lakes today are uh, swimmable, why we can fish in our streams and rivers, and why safe drinking water comes out of our, of our taps. So it was uh, passed, as we all know, by a bipartisan majority in Congress back in 1972, and has since been used by Republican and Democratic administrations alike to protect our nation's land and water. To talk more about the Sackett versus EPA ruling, we're joined now by Sam Sankar, the senior vice president for programs at Earth Justice, which filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in the case on behalf of Native tribes seeking to defend existing water protections. Can you summarize what the court ruled and the effect it will have on the environment in this country, Sam? Sure. Thank you for having me. So— to step back for a moment, the Clean Water Act is one of the most successful environmental laws that we have. Congress passed this law in 1972 because it recognized that the nation's waterways were deeply in peril. Rivers were on fire, fish were dying by the millions, and the nation recognized that we had a major problem. So cast against that backdrop, the Clean Water Act has been a major success. While there's more to be done, our nation's waterways are broadly cleaner, our water is safer to drink, and, uh, and things are better, and wetlands are protected. So we've, uh, we're now in a situation where the Supreme Court's new ruling takes away protections from over half of the nation's uh, 100 million acres of remaining wetlands. So the Supreme Court's ruling says that those wetlands are no longer covered by the federal protections of the Clean Water Act. And that's going to have tremendous implications for everyone. And that's because wetlands are a critical source of water for all of us, and they also serve to filter and protect and be part of the ecological fabric of our nation's waterways. And Sam, could you be more specific about how the court determines the definition of wetlands versus what the Biden administration was saying, this whole issue of the surface connections of wetlands to waters of the United States? Sure. Several years ago, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, the court, uh, in a minority opinion by Justice Scalia, a group, a small group of conservatives attempted to argue that the that the Clean Water Act only connect, only protects the wetlands that are that are connected by surface water to uh, nearby waters. That opinion did not gather a majority of votes of the Supreme Court. Instead, 
for over 45 years, we've had a system in which every presidential administration and Supreme Court opinions have said that it's not just the waters and the wetlands that are touching the waters. It's the wetlands that are nearby. It's the wetlands that are adjacent. So the opinion says the adjacent wetlands are really only those that are actually touching the waters. And as Justice Kavanaugh himself recognized, that just defies science, common sense, physics, and everyone's understandings of how wetlands are related to waters. And what do you see as the uh, next steps for, for those who want to, uh, to protect uh, the complete wetlands of the United States? What we need now is action from Congress, because the court's opinion, while it expresses significant hostility to our nation's environmental laws, can be addressed through legislation. Interestingly, when the Supreme Court ruled originally and Congress said originally that adjacent wetlands were protected, there's been a massive lobbying effort over the last 45 years to weaken those protections. And in fact, it has entirely failed. Now we can go back to Congress and say, do what you need to do to clarify to the Supreme Court that the Clean Water Act protects all our nation's waters, including the wetlands that our waters depend on for their health. The, the conservative Supreme Court justices, their records and what overall the court is going to see in the coming months, the cases you're most concerned about, Sam. Well, it's important to recognize that this Sackett decision is part of a thread of decisions from the Supreme Court. And can you explain who Sackett is? Sure. Uh, The Sacketts are a family in Idaho that uh, decided to develop on their property without a permit. They owned an excavation company and were aware of what the law said, but they called in that excavation company to dump an enormous amount of fill on their land. Their neighbors complained and asked the EPA to take a look at the property. And the EPA said, you know, you need a permit for this. The Sacketts, rather than getting a permit, decided to fight and to go to the Supreme Court. Sam Sankar, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Earth Justice's senior vice president for programs. He's speaking to us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. But we're going now to Uganda, where human rights advocates are condemning President Yoweri Museveni for signing a sweeping anti-LGBTQ measure into law that makes same-sex relationship punishable by life imprisonment. And in some cases, people can get the death penalty. It's one of the most draconian anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. This is Ugandan LGBTQ activist Delavi Kwagala. There's no hope, but where are we supposed to go? You don't want us in your country. You're not giving us jobs. You're not giving us education. You're not giving us medication. You are criminalizing people renting to us. Where do you want us to go? You are arresting us for literally doing nothing, for simply existing. You know, but where are we supposed to go? How did we become refugees in our own countries? 
We go now to Kampala, Uganda, where we're joined by Pepe Anzima, a human rights advocate. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Pepe. Explain exactly what this law imposes, what it means for the LGBTQ community, really what it means for all of Uganda. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this law is a horrific law. And it's horrific in the sense that um, although the last, the, the, the signed piece does not have the criminalization of identity, already the first versions of, of, of the law had already criminalized identity and people are being targeted based on their identity, uh, real or suspected identity. Um, we are recording cases of eviction uh, because landlords have been compelled by this law to report. Uh, even if the law has not yet been gazetted, but people are already taking action. Since March, actually since, since February, when the debate began, uh, we've been seeing a rise in, uh, in, 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 in violations towards LGBTIQ persons. Uh, we are seeing people becoming, LGBTIQ persons becoming more uh, homeless, Homelessness has been a real issue for the community, and we are seeing that on the rise because evictions are happening. Um, uh, family banishment is happening, people being kicked out of churches, jobs, schools, young people who are, you know, effeminate, who are soft, you know, soft boys or very mask masculine uh, girls are being condemned by this law. Uh, that is already happening, people deprived of education. Uh, but more so, our fight against HIV is also being impeded by this law because uh, if, if, if you're homosexual and you are found to be HIV positive, that is under aggravated homosexuality, which leads to punishment by death. Already we have laws on, on, on our books that punish uh, homosexual conduct as unnatural offenses. And this has been a law that um, the public has been using to condemn us, to blackmail, to extort money, to extort even same-sex sex, um, and lots of other, uh, you know, uh, violations with a lot of impunity. So that is coming more to light and just increasing in its magnitude right now. And could you talk about what it uh, what it could possibly be done to challenge this law, either within Uganda or also in uh, international bodies? Uh, absolutely. And just before I answer that, I, I, I need to add the piece about 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 um, the law seeking uh, claiming to want to protect children. But you will find that in the law, there's three years uh, imprisonment for any a child that is found to be LGBTIQ. So to answer what is being done to counter or mitigate the, the, the dangers of this law, uh, one, we've already put in a petition for an injunction for the implementation of the law because it violates several, several uh, constitutional rights, but also Uganda is not an island. Uganda is not existing in, 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 in isolation. Uganda is a signatory to many international, uh, covenants and, um, um, you know, um, laws. So because of that, uh, we are, we are, we are challenging this, 
but also we are Ugandans. We belong in, we belong in Uganda as advocates, as LGBTIQ persons, as parents of LGBTIQ persons, as mentors, as guides, and whatever of LGBTIQ persons. We belong in this country. We must make sure that the country is uh, comfortable for every Ugandan. So no one should be excluded, um, including on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. On Monday, President Biden called for the immediate repeal of Uganda's severe new anti-gay law threatening to impose sanctions against Uganda. In a statement, he said, quote, the enactment of Uganda's Anti-Homosexuality Act is a tragic violation of universal human rights, one that's not worthy of the Ugandan people, and one that jeopardizes the prospects of critical economic growth for the entire country. I join with people around the world, including many in Uganda, in calling for its immediate repeal. No one should have to live in constant fear for their life or being subjected to violence and discrimination. It is wrong. Those are the words of Joe Biden, the president. And I wanted to ask you, Pepe, how important it is that there is international condemnation. So you have, on the one hand, Joe Biden condemning this and threatening sanctions. On the other hand, looking at a Vanity Fair piece, um, anti-gay sentiment mm -hmm. in Uganda has climbed in recent years, due in no small part to American evangelicals who spent more than $20 million fighting LGBTQ rights in the country between 2007 and 2020, according to The Washington Post. Scott Lively, an American mm -hmm. pastor, spearheaded this effort in the early 2000s, participated in a series of popular anti-gay lectures in Uganda, describing homosexuality as a disease propagated by the West. Several years later, Uganda's parliament proposed the initial legislation known as the Kill the Gays Bill that was supported by a number of American Christian groups and eventually signed into law. So if you can talk about what the U.S. can do, people in the U.S., but also um, what the president of Uganda has done. He uh, sounded like he wanted to sound more moderate by sending the bill back to the legislature, but then signed off on a bill that could give some LGBTQ people the death penalty. Thank you for that question. And uh, I, I, I want to say that— um, we, as, as much as we welcome, uh, President Biden's, um, uh, strong and powerful condemnation of this law, uh, I, I think for us as uh, advocates and activists, we've been pushing this. We've been interacting with our, uh, U.S. partners and, and telling them that something big and dangerous is coming and it's coming from your country. Please have ways that you stop it before it comes to our country. And I think that has failed. So as much as I welcome uh, President Biden's um, uh, condemnation, I think there needs to be a lot of work done back home within the United States to make sure that these, um, you know, uh, exporters of hate into a country like Uganda, because Uganda seems to be geographically um, uh, positioned for, you know, for these people to come into our country and, and to test everything negative that they want to test in our country. So that needs to be stopped from the backyard in the United States before it comes this side. So now that we are uh, in, in this quagmire and in this danger, um, 
we call on the uh, global uh, partners, uh, global citizens to keep condemning this law, to keep putting pressure uh, on, uh, on our leaders to make sure that they honor the international covenants that they've been signatories to and domesticate them and treat their citizens as human beings, not as collateral damage the way uh, our country is doing with the LGBTIQ community. Um, in, two, in 2012, uh, my organization that was um, uh, shut down last year in August by, by, by the government, Sexual Minorities Uganda, uh, together with partners, uh, Center for Constitutional Rights, CCR, based in New York, we filed a case against Scott Lively. Um, you know, it's you, you can find the information on CCR's uh, website and, and so on. We did that because for us it was important to take homophobia or institutionalize homophobia back to where it came from. And it came from Scott Lively, so we wanted to take it back to him. And the courts heard us. Unfortunately, there was a jurisdiction issue. Um, Scott Lively appealed the case, but then again, it was ruled in our favor anyway. So um, these are things that we are going to continue doing, taking homophobia back where it belongs, even if it means us losing our lives. Yes, government wants to uh, put, you know, advocates and actual LGBTIQ persons uh, to death, but we are also prepared until the last drop of our blood, as long as we live our truth in this country. And Pepe, I wanted to ask you, uh, the U.S. government has significant uh, uh, influence uh, in Uganda, uh, about a billion dollars in, uh, in development aid from the United States uh, to Uganda. And also, the current government has played a key role as an ally of the United States uh, in Africa, even pro providing some troops in Somalia. Could you talk about the, the relations between the Ugandan government and the U.S.? in recent years? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the relation between Uganda and the United States uh, dates back to, you know, the 60s. Um, and it, it, it's been that one of mutual um, conversations and um, uh, engagements. So in the recent years, I, I, I think we saw... Um, the fact that Uganda has really been supportive of uh, some, um, you, 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 uh, rather the U.S. has been very supportive of some of, you know, backing up our health, um, uh, our health sector, our um, law enforcement, and so on. I think th th there's been that kind of um, smooth, but not so smooth uh, relations, and especially when it comes to human rights, um, that's when our government says, "Oh, here, don't cross." We can talk about um, we can talk about Somalia, we can talk about South Sudan, we can talk about all the regional, uh, you know, security issues, but do not talk about homosexuality. Don't we, we are a sovereign country and so on? But you are a sovereign country that has not safeguard the sovereignty of your citizens, and when your partner in trade partner in, in health uh, sort of cautions you a little bit to tell you that, hey, you're going off a little bit here. Let's, let's let, you know, let's stick to taking care of the citizenry. Then uh, we, we always, as, as, as Uganda, we, we, we always tend to um, uh, curve uh, back 
and start to show our power. I think there needs to be, uh, we know that the, 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 there's been conversations uh, happening uh, between the two governments, and it probably got to a point where there was a, a stalemate, and uh, we are seeing this law being signed. I don't think that uh, President Museveni um, ignores the plight of uh, LGBTIQ persons, but I'm also afraid that he's a politician. He will do um, whatever, you know, plays into whatever he sees, whatever he envisions. Unfortunately, um, you know, when the two governments disagree, although we are seeing that the U.S. is trying to safeguard our uh, our rights, I think it gets complicated because either way we end up as collateral uh, damage uh, within within these conversations and uh, engagements between the countries. Pepe Anzima, I want to thank you for being with us, human rights advocate, speaking to us from Kampala, Uganda. Next up, we go to Turkey, where the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has won another five years in office, extending his authoritarian rule into a third decade. Stay with us. Search by Mehmet Ali Sanikol. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show in Turkey, where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won Sunday's presidential runoff. With this victory, he extends his 20-year rule for a further five years, by far the longest rule of any leader since the founding of the Republic of Turkey a century ago. Erdogan received just over half of the vote. The election comes as Turkey continues to oppose Sweden's efforts to join NATO. On Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken urged Erdogan to drop his opposition to Sweden's NATO bid, while also saying that Turkey should be provided with upgraded F-16 fighters as soon as possible. We're joined by Jihan Tuol. He is a professor of sociology at University of California, Berkeley, author of The Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. He wrote a piece for The New York Times earlier this month headlined, Whatever Happens Next, Turkey is in Trouble. He's working on a book on right-wing populist regimes, including Erdogan's. He's written extensively in Turkish and English about Erdogan's rule. Uh, Professor Tuval, thanks so much for being with us. Can you start off by talking about the significance of this victory and characterize, if you will, Erdogan's rule over the past 20 years? 
It is a significant victory. So the far-right forces have held on to the parliament, which they were predicted to lose, and which was predict uh, what was predicted to be to be a tight race. The presidential race was uh, easily won by Erdogan. And this was, of course, made possible by the monopolization of the media and the judiciary and manipulation of the electoral system. Uh, however, it was also made possible by the incompetence of the mainstream opposition. So Erdogan's rule has been getting more and more authoritarian. It was uh, quite conservative from the get-go, and it had many authoritarian elements, uh, but uh, these were ignored by the Western world, and Erdogan was supported by liberals at home, too, uh, due to his neoliberal reforms, free market reforms mostly. Uh, but in the 2010s, he uh, changed track uh, while deepening some free market reforms, such as privatization. He also started to use uh, many uh, state capitalist tools to bolster a, a big defense sector. So the Turkish economy itself is now becoming a prop for a more and more nationalist regime. So the regime today is more conservative, more authoritarian and more nationalist, as well as being quite uh, anti-organized uh, labor. And in, in all of these senses, it's uh, really uh, destroying any prospects for democracy in Turkey. And, Professor, could you talk about how the economic situation in Turkey? Because clearly there appears to be a, a, a deep divide between the vote in the countryside and the major cities. Uh, but also, how has wealth inequality uh, uh, developed uh, 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 under Erdogan in terms of the, the masses of the people? And why does he still have so much support, especially in the uh, rural areas? Yes, not only in rural areas, but also in the working class districts uh, of the big cities. That, that is very important and usually ignored. So what's happening is inequality is deepening. So if you look at the numbers, that's very clear. So why are uh, the people who are losing the laboring classes still supporting Erdogan? Well, we, we have to make the picture a little bit more complicated, actually. So even though labor as a whole is losing, uh, the, the labor in the defense sector and also uh, small to medium-sized businesses uh, who benefit, benefit from low interest rates uh, are actually seeing a sustainable path in all of this for themselves. So sustainable in the sense that they keep their jobs, but with low wages and under horrific conditions. So, um, you know, work accidents, uh, deaths uh, caused by work, uh, quote-unquote, accidents uh, are rampant in Turkey. So th this is not just cheap labor, but really widely exploited labor. But the alternative to this, presented by the mainstream opposition, is not an alternative at all. Uh, they, their vision is a return to the 2000s, uh, where st Erdogan was still uh, the, the leader, but he was applying free market policies. So that's what the opposition is promising. And people well know that th that will mean 
unemployment, it will mean more debt and not necessarily a better life. So the people are forced to choose between an economic route that has already failed, uh, free markets, you know, pro-globalization, pro-neoliberal globalization, a route that has already failed and a route that, that may be unsustainable in the very long term, but at least is providing them with jobs now. I mean, that's what the people have voted for in these working class districts of the cities. Uh, Professor Tuwal, if you can talk about Erdogan's opposition to Sweden becoming a part of NATO, it's not an anti-militarist opposition, um, but it's because of Kurds uh, and Kurdish political asylum seekers coming from Turkey to Sweden, the people he wants extradited. Can you explain what this is all about? Yes, this is not an anti-NATO uh, opposition. It's not. It's not only not anti-militarist. It's not anti-NATO. So Erdogan is solidly pro-NATO, uh, but he wants to make sure that Sweden makes concessions bef be before it is accepted into NATO. It wants a lot of Kurdish activists. Uh, he wants a lot of uh, Kurdish activists extradited to Turkey uh, before Sweden is accepted. Uh, so uh, th this is actually a very complex picture because uh, even though Erdogan is pro-NATO, he also has very good relations with Putin and these uh, relations are going to get better. So Erdogan plays the anti-Putin card uh, when he talks to NATO uh, and he plays the anti-NATO card when he talks to Putin and at home to his own audiences, he presents himself as independent from both and, uh, you know, as a part of his imperial self-presentation, he, he, he sees himself and many of his supporters he, uh, see him as building a, a national Islamic empire in the very long run that is going to be an alternative to the NATO and to Russia. And, Professor, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you why repeated U.S. governments always tread so lightly when it comes to criticizing Turkey because of its role uh, in the Middle East and the role it plays uh, often to assist the United States in the Middle East. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah, it's not only the U.S., it's also the EU. Uh, so they criticize authoritarianism in Turkey, they criticize conservatism in Turkey, and then they support Erdogan uh, because they're getting something out of this. I mean, the, the global economy is getting cheap labor out of this. Uh, so this is in the interest of international capital. Uh, and for the U.S., uh, Erdogan is not a very reliable partner. They would prefer somebody else. But he is better than a, tr a true anti-imperialist. And uh, for the EU, uh, the, the calculation is much dirtier, actually. Uh, they pay Erdogan uh, to keep refugees out of Europe. Uh, so the dirtiest uh, deal is actually with the EU. And finally, Professor Tual, if you can comment on... The fact that in October the Republic of Turkey will celebrate its centennial. Um, talk about the significance of these elections in that context, Erdogan continuing through past 20 years. Yeah, again, there was a false hope that this would be the these elections would be the end of Erdoganism. So this Islamic surge uh, within the secular republic would just be a parenthetical note. 
but this was just wishful thinking. The, the organizational basis of Islamism and far-right nationalism in Turkey are very strong. And uh, the mistake was always counting on the bureaucracy and the secular middle classes to present an alternative to that, completely ignoring the laboring classes and marginalizing and excluding, excluding the Kurds. So that, that's what the mainstream opposition did. So the only way to keep Republican ideals alive in Turkey is through integrating Kurds and through mobilizing labor. Professor Cihan Tual, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Professor of Sociology, University of California, Berkeley author of The Thank Fall of the much. Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Angie Karen. Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Fels, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rose, Nermain Sheikh, Maria Tarasena. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.